welcome to episode eight of the LDS Mission Cast. This is Nick Galetti, and on this episode, I interview Casey Griffiths, who's a professor from BYU and one of the contributing authors to the book, What You Don't Know About the 100 Most Important Events in Church History. We discuss the importance of knowing the history of the church and how our unique history can be used as a proselyting tool. After that interview, we have another great segment from Sean Rapier from the Latter-day Lives podcast. Sean interviews a hilarious comedian, Steve Solberg, who tells a funny story from his mission when he was, well, shall we say, caught in an awkward moment. Also, music for this episode comes from Annie Britt. You can find her beautiful piano arrangements and this music that you're hearing on her site, AnnieBrittMusic.com. We'll have a link to that at our posting for this episode at LDSMissionCast.com. So now here is our interview with Casey Griffiths. Hello and welcome on this episode of the LDS Mission Cast. We have a very special guest, which is Casey Griffiths from BYU. He may be familiar to some of you out there because he teaches some of the fundamental courses at BYU that are part of your mandatory education there. But uh, he's, I guess, technically you're a church history Yeah, my, my expertise doctor. is in church history, but I'm kind of a generalist, I guess you'd say. Okay. Um, uh, I, I was a seminary and institute teacher for 11 years, and the urging from seminaries and institutes was to kind of be a little good at everything. Okay, jack of uh, all trades, maybe. Jack of all trades, that sort of thing. So I've taught all four books of Scripture, and uh, my specialty, if I have one, is kind of in the history of Latter-day Saint education. And part of that has been the history of Latter-day Saint missionary work because that's a big part of how we educate people is through our missionary work. Absolutely. You've served a mission. Mm-hmm. You said you served I've in— Fort Lauderdale. Fort Florida. Lauderdale. Yep. And— how does your mission experience, how did that help inform what you were going to do with your life as far as being a teacher? Did you always know you were going to be a teacher? No, I didn't. In fact, I think I was one of those kids that went back and forth between astronaut <laughs> and actor <laughs> oh, until good. I went on my mission. And uh, when I was out there, I just fell in love with teaching the gospel and with ministering to people and helping them. And when I came back, my career goal was I want to find something that's like my mission to do. I want something that gives me that sense of meaning. I haven't made a ton of money, but I've had a very fulfilling career that <laughs> has barely felt like work to me. Excellent. Uh, so I've been really happy. So your mission really changed yeah, your life yeah, a lot. Yeah, flipped me around 100%. Interesting. Moving into the topic of our interview, one of the things that our listeners should know and, and should check out as part of that is that you wrote or contributed to a book with Susan Easton Black mm-hmm. and and Mary Jane Woodger. Mary was the Jane Woodger, yeah. And do you have the title of the book? Yeah, um, the title. It's your favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel bad promoting myself, but uh, the title of the book is "What You Don't Know About the 100 Most Important Events in Church History." Now that is a mouthful, and let me clarify. <laughs> it's a very long title. <laughs> when I was when I was studying, I, uh, I I I loved this book called "The 100 Most Important Events in Christian History." I just felt like 
we needed something like that for Mormon history. And on top of that, the idea was kind of conceived in the time when the gospel topics essays were coming out, which the gospel topics essays focused mostly on history, but they announced from the beginning there was going to be basically 12 gospel topics essays and that was going to be it. And I remember thinking, no, no, we need a gospel topics essay on uh, temple practice and change and the Mountain Meadows massacre and all kinds of stuff that the church just didn't want to deluge everybody with, with sure. all this material. They wanted to keep it focused on kind of the most difficult stuff. And so I approached Mary Jane. Mary Jane was friends with Susan, and the idea came together to write a book that had 100 short chapters. Every chapter is about three to four pages that could serve as an introduction to church history generally. And it was partially because at the time, the church had things like Our Heritage, which is a pretty good yeah. introduction, um, and then had stuff like the Joseph Smith Papers, and it felt like there wasn't anything in between in between that was user-friendly for someone that was, say, getting ready to go on a mission or, say, a college freshman. And that's really who we had in mind when we wrote the book was someone that has a greater than seminary level of sophistication but might be a little challenged by something like uh, the Joseph Smith Papers, which is quite sophisticated. Okay. Now, this particular book is not part of anybody's missionary library per se, <laughs> no. but if you look at the standard missionary library, there isn't a whole lot about church history in that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not necessarily that there's a deficiency in that, but at the same time, we are living in a world where church history seems to be more and more available, and as a result, missionaries feel like they need to be more and more aware of these issues and not be blindsided by them on their mission or anything like that. And for that matter, the same is true with members of the church. Right. There's a lot of these things that are not what we would call the standard history that we hear. Right. And and honestly, I feel, at least in missionary work, our history is a big part of our appeal, right? It I, can be. It, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's both sides, right? Joseph Fielding McConkie was one of my professors uh, back when I was in grad school, and he used to complain about our missionary material because uh, when I was a missionary, the first discussion was God Godhead. and Jesus Christ, and yeah. you'd sit down and spend a half hour talking about how similar you were to everybody else. And he used to complain and say, that's like a, a vacuum salesman going into someone's house and saying, look, we have the exact same vacuum as you. Um, he said, what we need to do is just punch the restoration right away. And I was really pleased when Preach My Gospel came out in 2005 that the first lesson was the restoration, that we needed to kind of be approaching people, not to denigrate their religions, but to kind of say, here's what we have to offer. And our history is so beautiful and complex that I really feel like it's a it's a great point to start when we're explaining what makes Mormonism unique and, and what kind of sets us apart from all the other religions out there. When you think about it, a lot of other religions do kind of lead with their history. Yeah. Catholics are going to talk about their connection for thousands of years. And then you, you have Muslims that will go back to their origins with Muhammad. And so there, it's not that uncommon for us to want to look back to our history as part of what we teach people about our church. No, and, and not only that, I mean, the grand appeal for me to LDS history is to tell somebody, hey, you, you don't have to read about a saga that happened thousands of years ago. You can be in the middle of it. You can be a participant in this this grand historical cycle that we're in the midst of. And you can understand and know. I think this was the big selling point back when Joseph Smith was on earth, yeah. that the heavens are open and God still speaks. And you can do what Moses or Isaiah did. You just have to open your eyes and see that it's there and see the miracles and the angels that surround us. I'm going to try and classify your book in a way that might make it attractive to some. Okay. 
and maybe <laughs> hopefully doesn't come across as a slam to others, but with a three to four page chapter for right. each one of these stories, right? It feels like a toilet read. <laughs> that <laughs> that is exactly what we were going for. Okay, it, we kept calling it while we were writing it a bathroom book. Yeah, okay. which was which is you a little bit go, less crass. You could than go my into version. the bathroom and you could read a chapter and come out having learned something. There you go. And this is no disrespect to um, some of my more formidable colleagues at BYU that write really in depth hard history. We wanted to write this as a way of bringing their research to people that might not be fully prepared. Uh, we wanted something that was user friendly and and not too challenging. And uh, and that was partly a negotiation on our part, given that it was going to be one hundred chapters. Sure. Our publisher had had length constraints for us. And at the same time, I think from the beginning, we'd always designed it to be something that was, you know, like I said, you could pick it up, spend three or four minutes, learn about an important event, and then head off. And if it was a familiar event like the first vision, we tried to take it in a different direction. We talked about the account of the first vision. Mm -hmm. If it was a really unfamiliar event, like I was really surprised and came away from the book with a huge uh, testimony of how important Brigham Young was in creating the church. One of my favorite chapters to write built off of Bill Hamlin's uh, research where he talked about how in the year before his death, Brigham Young completely reorganized the church, uh, said basically, instead of having this whole Protestant parish model, go where you want to go, we're going to organize words geographically and we're going to assign a bishop to watch out for everybody in a geographical area and put an elder score on a relief society. All this stuff that we take for granted. That to me was one of the most delightful parts of writing the book was a chance to present some of this amazing research that's been done by some wonderful scholars in the last few years in a way that was was really approachable and user-friendly. So one of the things that I think is interesting about packaging it this way, where mm-hmm. it's more concise, as a missionary... Not only is it easier for you to read, but it becomes easier for you to digest the information and then teach it. Yeah. So this actually could be a teaching manual of sorts because they're going to take these stories and they could even share them with their investigators. If there was someone that maybe had a question about some of these matters of church history, they could take them that book. I would hope so because one of the other influences on me was I mentioned I served my mission in Florida. And I don't know how bad everybody else's mission was, but my mission was anti-Mormon central. And especially one area I was in, oh my goodness, it was like almost every single door that we opened, someone brought out some issue from church history or some anti-Mormon argument. And some were more cohesive than others. But a member there handed me one-minute answers to anti-Mormon questions. Mm. And I read that book and spent a couple of weeks you know, getting really proficient at answering those arguments. And I think I wanted something also that would serve that purpose too. You know, my my background is that I've spent four years at BYU and 11 years prior to that in seminaries and institutes. And so I'm used to speaking to 15 to 20-year-olds. And I wanted them to kind of see how an event in church history that uh, that could be used to hammer us over the head, you know, something like plural marriage or the Mountain Meadows Massacre or race in the priesthood could be understood and explained and hopefully even taught in a way that was instructive and uplifting and kind of showed, yes, you know, there there are darker elements to our history, but there there's also a complexity uh, that makes it really, really wonderful and, uh, and makes it so absorbing. Because if it was just, you know, the sanitized story, nobody ever did anything wrong, we were always in the right, uh, we'd lose some of those colors that have made our story so rich and our our heritage such a powerful draw to people. And that's why I cringe a little bit when I see 
overly sanitized versions of our history. <laughs> and I'm not going to, I don't want to call anybody out here or any particular, you know, programs or anything like that. But um, sometimes I've seen our history depicted without any of the dark shadows in it. And you can, there's an authenticity that's missing would be the only thing that I say. I think everybody that does it is well-meaning, but I also think that sometimes our message lacks authenticity because we're trying so hard to appear perfect that we don't recognize that people people understand that there's a lot of complexity. If you've ever read the Bible, you'll realize there's a ton of complexity surrounding all the people that were in the Bible, that they weren't just saints or sinners. There wasn't a black and white dichotomy, that there was good and bad and not so good and not so bad mingled all together in the same people. Yeah. So again, this wasn't necessarily meant to focus on controversial issues, mm-hmm. but it does have them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that our, our idea was to inform, but when I talked with uh, my co-authors, I also said, any chance you have to take on uh, something that might come up from our church history that might be used to bludgeon people over the head. So in our chapter on the Mormon Reformation, we talk about blood atonement. We revised the book extensively uh, to, from from its first draft to talk about seer stones because in the middle of writing the book, the Joseph Smith papers published uh, the printer's manuscript for the Book of Mormon, which had the photographs of seer stones yeah. and a wonderful essay on how the seer stones were used and what Book of Mormon translation was like. And so we really did want it to be the sort of thing that, you know, a person that felt uncomfortable with history, wanted it to be history for people that hate history, to be honest okay. with you. <laughs> but that they could not only read a couple of great stories, but also say, ooh, is there a good three to four page explanation on what the deal is with the seer stone and how translation worked for the Book of Mormon? Now, we're at a point in the conversation where I would say we kind of have an idea of what your book is and what mm-hmm. it's about. And we want to, of course, encourage people to go out and pick up a copy. But there is one side to this that we have to kind of, I don't want to say pull back the reins, mm-hmm. but we have to also understand we're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. Right. I mean, that I, I went on a mission too, so I can say this. <laughs> They're kids. Yeah. And, and they can't be history experts. No. So when we're talking about missionaries reading these stories and coming across these some of these controversial episodes, what warnings do you have about using your book in those contexts? Is there any re- way that they could use it wrong? Um, yeah, that that book, One Minute Answers to Anti-Mormon Questions. I read it and, um, like I said, became very proficient at answering anti-Mormon questions. And this was early stage in my mission when I'd been out two or three months. I'd just really finished training. And I was with kind of a senior mission, an older missionary who was in the last fourth of his mission probably. And I'd, I'd read that book. I remember one day we went tracting and door opens, guy pulls out an anti-Mormon argument and I knew exactly what to say. I knew what verbal traps to kind of lure him into and I just led him down the path and then smashed him. <laughs> and that happened at the next four doors. And finally, my companion turned to me and said, would you do me a favor? Just don't talk at the next door, okay? Interesting. And I was like, what do you mean? We're killing these guys. (laughs) And my companion was like, yeah, you're winning arguments here, but you're not winning souls. 
And there's something to be said about that approach to not be argumentative, to to start off simple and uh, and not attack back, or if someone attacks you, to just back off and say, well, okay. Because if someone's coming at you with a really sophisticated anti-Mormon argument, chances are they've made up their minds and they're not a good prospect for conversion and you've got to move on to someone that is. At the same time... Um, a good knowledge of church history can be really, really helpful for those people that are sincerely seeking but get ambushed by, by anti-Mormon material. I served my mission in the late 90s, and uh, there was no Wikipedia or internet then. Right. But I know that nowadays it's a major plague on our missionaries because if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of Google, Elder Ballard <laughs> says. And when you Google things, bad information sometimes comes up. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very useful skill for missionaries to be able to say things like, yeah, we did practice plural marriage, but here's the historical context. Or, yeah, the church the church did have a complex history with race and the priesthood, but here's a few things that you should understand about that too. And so we don't want it to turn into a, we didn't want it to be a bash book. And so there aren't points like, here's how to, right. but but we did want to allow these, these young missionaries, and you know, they're only 18 or 19, but I think they're capable of a lot more sophistication than we give them credit for okay. sometimes, um, of understanding complex issues. And also, um, I'll say this because the two classes I teach at BYU are Foundations of the Restoration, which is the introductory church history class, and the Eternal Family, which is kind of the introduction to the gospel in everyday Mormon life class. There's a there's an immense sense of relief when in my classes we get up and say, today we're going to talk about plural marriage. And we don't just kind of sit there and get all uncomfortable, we just say, we've got to talk about this. This is what happened. This is why uh, it's difficult for some people to understand, but this is why it shouldn't destroy your testimony. Or in an eternal family class to get up and say, today we're going to talk about the church's position on same-sex attraction. Uh, this is uh, this is what the church teaches. This is what the church does not teach. This is what uh, the leaders of the church have said about individuals that are, are LGBT and how we should act towards them. This is the place of LGBT individuals within the church. And among our students, there's almost kind of been this, oh, we can talk about this? It's disarming, it, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because they've I, – I think – the, when I was a curriculum writer for the church, uh, we had a big discussion on uh, quarantine versus inoculation, <laughs> and the big okay. the big term in in uh, in church in church curriculum at the time was inoculation. Right. But in the past, our our strategy had kind of been, well, if they bring it up, talk about it. In fact, I remember when I was first a seminary teacher, someone saying, "Don't bring up any concerns that they don't already have." And so as a seminary teacher, our curriculum never dealt with plural marriage. You taught something like DNC 132 as an introduction to eternal marriage, but you never dealt with the fact that what the Lord was really introducing was plural marriage there. Mm -hmm. Likewise, I talked to, <laughs> I remember when September Dawn came out a couple of years ago, that I movie. I that one. Oh, September Dawn was a movie that was supposed to dramatize the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Oh, okay. And it was coming out and... I knew it was coming out in September. They were going to open it on the day the Mountain Meadows Massacre actually happened. The movie had John Voight and a bunch of no. well-known people. So I spent the summer reading three books on Mountain Meadows, expecting my students to come back and be like, what's the deal with this? I never had a student bring it up. <laughs> Did they even watch it? The, well, September, See, I didn't even know it came September out. Dawn opened at like 19 at the box office or no. something like that and kind of disappeared in the midst of terrible reviews and it had an R rating and I don't know if it got a wide release. But... I had all this information and wanted to talk about Mountain Meadows and never talked about it because right. it didn't come up. 
in our classes, you know, inoculation means that you you might talk about something that's initially disturbing to an individual, uh, but you also introduce them to this more complex take on church history uh, that arms them a little bit to kind of say, not just church history, but American history, but your life in general is going to be more complex than just a real simple story where things are black and white. And I think I think we've gotten a, a good response from it uh, because there's a hunger for us to talk to them about these things and to talk to them as adults and to just flat out engage them and be genuine about what's difficult in our history, what's uplifting in our history, and how to negotiate the boundary between the two. Well, we, we had many discussions in our mission because when I served— we had what was called the Missionary Pal. Did oh, you hear yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah. Little black book. I had a copy of the Missionary Pal. Yeah. <laughs> and it was actually supposed to be banned in our mission because <laughs> what it did was it created a sense that we were giving missionaries ammo and going into battle. Right. And and so caution again is this information is to be assimilated into your life because it's part of our culture, it's part of our history. It isn't meant to arm you per se. Right. But it also, we shouldn't be afraid of the idea that this can be a shield. Yeah. Well, and, and honestly, can I tell a little anecdote oh, absolutely. here? One of, my, one of my history professors at BYU, Blair Holmes, shared this anecdote by a man named James Stockdale, who nobody knows. James Stockdale was an American admiral. If he's famous for anything, he was Ross Perot's running mate back oh, in okay. the 90s. James Stockdale, like, like John McCain, was a prisoner of war in Vietnam and uh, spent several years being tortured in northern Vietnam. And he came back and, and, and shared this experience where he said, said in in his experience the the prisoners the american prisoners broke into three categories the north vietnamese would try and make them be disillusioned about america and its mission its purpose and he said the first category were the people that like had no knowledge and when when the north vietnamese would try and say things like well americans are bad because they killed the native americans the first group would just look them in the face and say forget you you know i'm not going to listen to anything that you say you're wrong i'm right that's it right he said uh, the second group were people like him that had been to college he'd had a he had a master's degree and he would have the north vietnamese come in and say america's bad because they killed the Native Americans. And he would go, well, yeah, that's true, but there's a lot of factors in that that need to be considered and, and taken into account. And they wouldn't destroy his faith in the cause because he had a sophisticated level of understanding. He said the people that were really in danger of being brainwashed by the North Vietnamese were the people that had, say, a high school level of understanding, that knew and had read somewhere that... Uh, the United States had a harsh Native American policy, but didn't know enough about it to know the ins and outs of how it worked or what the historical context was. And he said that those were the people that got broken, that his thesis was basically you should get a ton of knowledge or have almost none at all, <laughs> that having a little knowledge was what was kind of dangerous. And that's what sometimes scares me in regards to our history and our doctrine is that missionaries sometimes go out and they have just enough knowledge to to be kind of dangerous, that when someone comes up and says, well, did you know that your church uh, massacred a wagon train? They can go, well, I've, I've never heard that before. We'd like them to be sophisticated enough to say, yeah, that happened and it was bad. 
but I also understand what was going on and, uh, and why that happened and why it doesn't necessarily mean that the church isn't true. And that level of sophistication is what we kind of strive for uh, in our classes because a lot of my students are, haven't gone on missions yet or getting ready to go on missions. I teach, like I said, introductory classes. So yeah. I do teach it as if I was talking to a high school senior getting ready to go on a, on a mission. So church history subjects, they come up not only from the investigators, but missionaries do their own personal study and right. they research different things. And missionaries come home. And some of them, I know from my mission, they've come home and they have felt as if some of these stories that they are hearing about church history were new to them. Right. Which I know isn't entirely true because we got it on our missions all the time. <laughs> sure. But yet there is still this sense of feeling as if there's information that people should have had all along. Right. And they didn't. And there's a sense of betrayal almost. There is. And and one of the saddest things that, you know, I hear someone say is, why didn't the church talk about this sooner? Or why haven't I heard about this before now? Well, take something like the Seer Stone. That's been a, a big subject of discussion in the last few years. Since the Joseph Smith Papers published the photograph of right. the Seer Stone, there have been all kinds of people saying, why didn't I hear about this? And has the was the church trying to cover this up? And that's a little frustrating because we've known about the Seer Stone sure. for Decades and decades, I mean, it was a common narrative told in the 19th century. It's in Comprehensive History of the Church, which was published in the early 20th century. There's a story in The Friend, The Friend in 1972 about the seer stone. And so sometimes, you know, it's it's not it's not a cover-up on behalf of the church. It's ignorance on our part. And because we haven't studied in depth, all of a sudden the church has betrayed us. At the same time, there is sometimes this, this feeling that we don't give the church enough leeway on historical imp- interpretation to understand how history actually works. The reason why we don't or haven't talked a lot about the seer stone uh, prior to 2015 or maybe even a little bit before that, because Garrett Dirkmod and Mike McKay and a few others have done some wonderful work on that, was because most of the narratives that mentioned the seer stone were people like Emma Smith and David Whitmer and Martin Harris. And in the 19th century, there's a good reason why a a Utah Latter-day Saint wouldn't trust an account from David Whitmer or Emma Smith or Martin Harris. They had left the church, and so we saw them as apostates and felt like their historical information was less valuable than something that came from Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith uh, preferred the term Urim and Thummim and the Nephite interpreters, and so that became our historical narrative. And then, you know, in the 20th century, when we got enough distance from the time frame to go back and look and say, well, I don't think Emma or David Whitmer or Martin Harris were trying to discredit the Book of Mormon. We just didn't trust them because they left the church. We picked up those historical accounts again and said, this is this is interesting stuff and this is stuff that we should take seriously. And history was reinterpreted. Well, that happens all the time in history. One of the things that made me want to study history was that at least Latter-day Saint history, you can't ever get to the bottom of it, you know? And you need to accept that, that if some new historical account emerges, it's not going to destroy the church. It'll add color to what we believe and teach. And just because I found something new doesn't mean that what I knew before wasn't true. I get up in front of my church history classes and say, look, everything that you've been taught as a child is true. 
Now we're going to make it more complex and show you how, how wonderful and beautiful it is, how it really does fit the world that we see around us and wasn't kind of this idealized version that we we're close to. Kind of like when I was a kid, I loved American history and Americans were the good guys. And, <laughs> you know, I, you'd watch like a John Wayne Sands of Iwo Jima movie and appreciate, hey, we were there fighting fascism. Well, then you get older and you see an edited, let me say that, version of something <laughs> like Saving Private Ryan or Letters from Iwo Jima and realize, wow, this is more complex than I thought it was. doesn't mean that Americans weren't the good guys, but it also means that there's colors and shades and hues that I couldn't appreciate to the story beforehand. And making that leap from the simplicity of adolescence and childhood to the complexity of adulthood is where we kind of live and where I've, I've spent most of my career just negotiating that boundary to say, just because the story is more complex than you think it is, doesn't mean that the story isn't true or beautiful or the true story, you know, that truth is a complex concept and, and we can embrace more shades of the truth uh, and still have it be true in our lives. Yeah. Well, that's all great information. Where can people get your book? <laughs> um, it's available at almost any. It was published by Deseret Book, It was right? published by Deseret Book. They did a wonderful job uh, helping us. Uh, it's an it's an ebook too. So I was really thrilled that they, they made the ebook really inexpensive as well because I didn't want to – I wasn't interested in making money. I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I was just – I wanted that. I wanted a textbook like that that I could, uh, yeah. that I could give to people. So final thoughts. As it relates to missionary work, what do you see the role of your book in missionary work? Um, well, I think missionaries ought to be prepared to discuss our history and be prepared to deal with some controversy in regards to our history. And for that, they need to be a little familiar with our history. And kind of like you pointed out right now, in the missionary library, there's some wonderful resources and in the scriptures themselves. And I will, uh, I'll absolutely say this, in Gospel Library, if, if you're one of those missionaries that gets an iPad, uh, Gospel Library has, had, has added some incredible resources uh, in the last few years that I think you should take advantage of. I think every missionary should read all the gospel topics essays before they go, honestly. They just need to. Yeah. Our book serves the purpose of providing a an overview of the entire history of the church. So if someone brings up Proposition 8 in California, which is still kind of fresh in our minds, or the origins of the family proclamation, or something that might be a little more obscure, like uh, why does your church have such a strong affiliation with the Boy Scouts or why are there female missionaries and what's the role of women in the priesthood that the book would help them kind of deal with some of those issues too. And I would say, you know, as a, as a missionary, that was where I really fell in love with the history of the church. For me, it was the old Institute Manual Church History in the Fullness yeah. of Times. I remember I'd read the Book of Mormon and then I'd read Church History in the Fullness of Times and I just fell in love with these people and it was partially because the people in church history in the fullness of times were so human and so funny and kind of flawed and and up and down. And some of them did well and some of them did not so well that it almost became a, sorry to borrow a phrase here, another testament of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's just the, the testament that's being composed in our time. And I would guess 2,000 years from now, the stories of Joseph and Brigham and Wilford will be right up alongside Isaiah and Moses and Nephi and Samuel the Lamanite as testaments that God works in all times and all places with all different kinds of flawed, struggling people. But he 
does work with us and that our testament, which is being composed right now, will be just as uplifting and just as powerful a missionary tool someday as the Book of Mormon is for us right now. It's fantastic. I love it. So again, give us the long title of the book. <laughs> the long title is What You Don't Know About the 100 Most Important Events in Church History. Excellent. And we'll put a link to that at the posting <laughs> for this episode at ldsmissioncast.com. And can I say, I love the people at Desiree Book, and they were wonderful <laughs> to work with. That title was their suggestion. I wanted it to just be the 100 most important events in church history, but I actually think that a book with that title had been published, and it oh, was okay. about Catholic history, and so we had, to, we had to change ours. No, that's bit. understandable. And and honestly, it is what we we may not know about church history. There's, well, there's quite a bit there. That's another thing that we wanted to emphasize is I wrote the book with two women, wonderful, wonderful co-authors, and we tried to explore some of the lesser-known chapters of LDS history that focus on international stories, on uh, on women's stories, on stories of minorities. And that's another appeal in the book, too, is I, I, hope, uh, I hope that a person that picks it up will come away with a new appreciation of some of these populations that, uh, that don't always get the attention that they deserve. Fantastic. Thank you again for coming in and talking about your book and about the the urgency almost that we need to have in missionary work to address matters of church history and, and even those that are controversial. So thank Glad you for coming here. in. No problem. We want to thank Casey Griffiths for taking the time to come in and talk with us about how important it is to know our church history when going out and preaching the restored gospel throughout the world. Now here it is, our funniest Latter-day Life segments to date. Here is Sean Rapier and comedian Steve Solberg. Hey, it's Sean Rapier with the Latter-day Lives podcast, and this week my guest is Steve Solberg. Steve is an incredibly talented comedian who has a great story about missionary work. Steve? Thanks for having me. Uh, so when you're on your mission, I, I went out when lock your heart was a super popular phrase. I think, yeah. I don't know, maybe that's still a popular phrase. I, I remember, know. I remember that well. There they, was that whole talk about it. They'd give you the talk in uh, at the MTC and they'd go, lock your heart, elders and sisters, and yeah. we would all, you know, Which metaphorically. Meant, meant don't look at people of the opposite sex or whatever, just yeah. don't even think about it. Lock your heart off. Sure, you're a 19-year-old full of hormones, but you are on the Lord's <laughs> errand right now, and those hormones are going to they're gonna mind their business. So I actually didn't really have that hard of a time with it. I was, I mean... Where'd you serve? Montreal, Montreal, Canada. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, to, to be perfectly candid, I had not kissed a girl before my mission. I was mm. pretty shy. But, I mean, I was still attracted to to women. So we, on occasion, you run into just beautiful girls, and it blindsided you, and your hormones just hit you in the face, <laughs> and you go, where, what, what am I? What? Who am I? So we were knocking doors, me and my companion, and we're at one porch, and me and this companion, we would sing constantly. Uh, Montreal's very Catholic, and so we would have a song that would go, um, they would all put these like Mary shrines in their front yard. Yeah. And we had a, ra- a, a little song called Mary Shrine in the front yard. And, uh, <laughs> and I was the low part. I would sing Mary Shrine in the front yard, Mary Shrine. <laughs> and so we're on the porch and I'm s- like kind of mumbling it to myself. These are the things that all missionaries do to get through the day. You have to. You have to. There's no yeah. way you're going to live a normal life. keep each other life. entertained, right. 
We're sitting at the door, Mary And he's like, I pray to Mary. Oh, you're in a bathtub. And like, because it looked like half a bathtub. Yeah, it always looked like half a bathtub. Like, yeah. it was the weirdest yeah. thing. Sure. <laughs> so then, out of the side door, about 12 feet away, I didn't even notice they had a side door. We're at what I think is the front door. And then out of the side door, this gorgeous, stunning blonde girl pops out in like this sundress and like the <laughs> wind is flowing and she's French, of course. And so she's like, Willow, in that sing-songy way that I didn't do as, as effectively, you know, that was, it was yeah, Willow, sure. birds chirping, sun was gleaming. And I said in French, I'll say it in English here. Uh, oh, wait, wait. She goes, oui, ça va? And it, which is like, hey, how's it going? And uh, so I say back to her, hi, we're from the Church of Jesus. Good, I'm doing good. <laughs> Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> That's how I said it. <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs> the Church of Jesus. Good, I'm doing good. Latter-day Saints, the how are you? awkward response. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. <laughs> Ella. You know, I mean, it ended as soon as it started. Uh, oh, thanks. I'm good. And she closed the door. Oh, uh, my companion. One of the greatest just... stories. <laughs> my companion was like, we're walking away, and he just mumbled, uh, somebody has a crush. And I was like, shut up. Don't talk about it. Like, you know, shush up, actually. We so didn't say shut I, up. I think it's safe to say <laughs> members of the church think that the missionaries are always perfect and always get everything. Everything's supposed to come out just right. Maybe it doesn't quite always work out that way. Not always, no. Steve, thank you so much uh, for sharing that with us. Go check out Steve Solberg on Facebook. Check out his comedy on YouTube. He is just hilarious. And for LDS Mission Cast, I'm Sean Rapier. about you guys but i thought that story was good anyway make sure to check out the full interview with steve solberg on sean's podcast latter day lives thank you for listening to the lds mission cast we're glad that you join us each and every week and we thank you for those of you that have been sharing our episodes with your friends and with those that are engaged in missionary work in all its forms please take a moment again to send us an email at contact at ldsmissioncast.com to let us know how we're doing, or you can reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We need your reviews on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Um, that helps us be found by new listeners. So please, please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing, even if you think we stink. Just let us know how we're doing so we can know what to do better. But uh, thank you again for listening to this episode, and please tune in each week. We have a new episode that comes out every Thursday. So until next time, this is Nick Galetti. Thanking you for listening to the LDS Mission Cast. <laughs>